Hello there, it is Saturday night as I record this little bit of audio and I'm frantically trying to wedge it into tomorrow's episode so that I um, can release it with tomorrow's episode. But I haven't written anything down for this, so I'm hoping it's not too much of a ramble because unfortunately I do have a tendency to ramble if I don't write things down. As you may be aware, the British Podcast Awards were today and I actually wasn't there myself, but I was informed by the lovely Danny Robbins, that we came third in the Listener's Choice Award, which is pretty incredible. I am a little bit shocked by that information. If the information is wrong, blame Danny. It's not my fault. I said initially that my goal was to be shortlisted and you guys well and truly stepped up for that one. I, I just I just can't believe it. I'm so grateful. I know it sounds like a really stupid thing and it probably sounds like I'm doing an Oscar speech, but like, what it has done is it's made me really just suddenly really aware that there are people listening on the other end and that there are people who respect the podcast and respect me as a podcaster enough to take the time to vote. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. I don't know who came second, but I know that Red Handed came first. And as you guys know, if you know Right Handed, they're an enormous podcast with literally millions and millions of listeners. They are an indie podcast, like well-deserved win. Um, but it just made me think that if Red Handed with millions of listeners came first, I do not have millions of listeners. Real Life Ghost Stories does not have millions of listeners. However, what it did show me was that while I don't have millions of listeners, obviously a huge amount of you who are listening took the time to go and vote. And I feel very humbled and very thankful and I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. You are so wonderful. It might seem like a small thing to vote, but it has, it's made me very happy. So thank you. I will figure out a way to thank you guys properly. I don't know what that's going to be yet. Um, I'm frantically trying to re-upload tomorrow's episode so I can add this bit in. So thank you. Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. You all are wonderful. And it looks like Idris Elba presented an award today. So I'm kind of livid I didn't go. <laughs> oh, also, as a technical note, in this episode, there is an author called G.D. Jones that I referred to a lot. But for some reason, my brain keeps mixing up G's and J's. So I referred to him as J.D. Jones loads of times. And I'm really sorry. It's not J.D. Jones. It's G.D. Jones. <sighs> Let's get into the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 165 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off today, I need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Kiona Adair, Chris Parry, Estella's Revenge, Amy Weathers, Ryan Orr, Jenna Lawson, Steph Bowring, Candy Flaws, Georgie White, Mason Krupa, Sabrina Evans, Colin, Sandra Sorensen, Deji, Evelyn Pekin Watik, Lucy Martin, Andrew Paval, Jessica Kay, John Wales, and Denise Armour. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is Incantation. 
Incantation was released in 2022. It has 6.2 out of 10 on IMDb and 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. Six years ago, Lee Ronan is cursed after breaking a religious taboo. Now she must protect her daughter from the consequences of her actions. Before I really get into it, just to say that this film is subtitled, so it's absolutely not a passive watch. You have got to be like in it, watching it, paying full attention. And I don't think I can do the likes and dislikes without giving a bit more context to the story. The story takes place over a couple of different timelines. The film begins with a mother collecting a little girl who has not been in her custody since she was born. So they're trying to reconnect, which is quite a sweet little storyline. And then you have another timeline where the same woman six years before was in a trio. Her and her two friends created ghost hunting paranormal content for YouTube. And for one of their videos, they decide to go and visit the relatives of the men of the trio. And they live up the mountains in this really, really rural community. And they worship this deity called Mother Buddha. And the trio know there's like this tunnel that is supposed to be cursed that you're not meant to go into. And they go to take part in this ritual. As you can imagine, things go terribly wrong in numerous different ways. And the trio decide to enter the tunnel. The girl, Lee Ronan, is pregnant when she enters the tunnel. So therefore, she is cursed and her daughter is subsequently cursed. She spends that time, I believe, in a mental institution because she has a breakdown after the events and believes that she is cursed by this deity. So there's a huge amount going on in this film. So let's get into the likes. I absolutely loved the beginning of this film. It directly addresses the audience and it does that frequently throughout where the film breaks the fourth wall and directly addresses the audience. And it's this idea that our will impacts the way of the world and our own perception changes how we interpret things, which immediately to me seemed to set this up as a bit of a, is this paranormal or is this not paranormal? Is this in our head or is this stuff actually happening? And you know how much I love a thinker. And I think the breaking the fourth wall and addressing the viewer directly is really effective in this story. It freaked me out, to be honest. There were points where there was different chanting with stuff on the screen that I felt a bit like, oh, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. It seemed to be heavily influenced by films like The Ring, where there's this tiny part of you that's like, oh God, what if this is real? And what if I am being cursed right now by looking at this thing on the screen? Very effective. I enjoyed it. The wee girl, Dodo, is so adorable. Until she very much isn't. So I wrote that she was really adorable until I saw her being a freak. And then obviously she becomes a freak later and she very much is not adorable. She is fucking terrifying. I was like, no, Dodo, you can you can fuck off out of my life, all right? Because I'm not dealing with this. Aside from when she was being a fucking weirdo, Dodo is very cute and her relationship with Lee Ronin, her mom, they're trying to like build this relationship together. And because of the humanity in this story, I really wanted everything to work out for them. Like I really wanted everything to work out for them. I thought the character work was really good. Like the characters were nuanced and flawed and very human. And I was rooting for them the whole way through because sometimes in horror films, The creators sometimes forget about the character development a little bit and only focus on the scares. And therefore, you don't really care about the scares because you don't really care about the characters. But I did really care about the characters in this. And I have to say, this film is fucking creepy. There were plenty of moments in this movie where I was genuinely freaked out and watching between my fingers. And as I said in an earlier episode, I am currently house sitting. So I'm in a strange house. And I was thinking to myself, oh, what was that noise upstairs? 
oh is that a is that just a house settling or is that something else and then the battery and the remote went and usually when a film gets too much for me I pause it and go and do something else and then come back and continue watching it so I couldn't pause it so I was just stuck watching it in horror and look there were bits that were really really creepy there were a few big old jump scares and really gory moments in there but I didn't rely on them and I think that subtle slow scares in general, leave the viewer kind of feeling more disconcerted than if you just have constant jump scares. So I'm going to move very quickly onto the dislikes. I'm just going to say publicly, I'm going to put it out there, that if I open the door of this cursed haunted tunnel that everyone says stay out of, that the creepy old woman living in the mountain says don't go in the tunnel, and if I open that door and I immediately hear screaming, there's not a hope in hell that I'm stepping foot in there. So at some point you have to take responsibility for your actions, whether you're a paranormal investigator or not. Okay? If people in the mountains who practice this ancient religion say, don't go into the tunnel, into the mountain, because Mother Buddha is going to like rip your face off or whatever, then just listen to them. This film was also filmed like almost like a found footage. It was filmed on handheld, which I generally like as a way to shoot movies. But at various points in the movie, they had shots that they obviously couldn't do with a handheld and a point of view. So they were just done by somebody else and it really annoyed me. And I was like, what, what is the, is the deity, is the demon holding a second camera? Is the demon also documenting this process? Because why are we getting a shot of the protagonist holding the camera also filming? It really, it really wound me up. And it was a small thing, right? But I just felt like, If you're going to lean into something, you have to do it fully and try and create the scares only from that point of view. You know, it just I just took me out of the film every time I saw it happening, because when I realized it was happening, then I was like, oh, here we go again. Mother Buddha has got her new Canon fucking G7 and she's making a nice little home movie about the last time she ripped people's fucking faces off. So here's the thing about this movie. And I thought about it a lot afterwards because I fundamentally feel like I should have absolutely loved it because it was genuinely scary and it genuinely had a really good story. And then I was like, why didn't I love it? What is it about it that I didn't like? And I realised there was so much to pack into this story. So it's like simultaneously a story about a mother who is trying to mother her child, who she thinks is cursed. And she's trying to reconnect with this child that she hasn't had custody of in a long time. It's a story about three YouTubers going to a cursed location And it's a story about a group of people living in the mountains who worship a deity. And then it's a story that's all about like a motherly love, motherly instinct. It's a story that's about the implications of religious taboo. It's a story about curses. It's a story about whether people believe they are cursed and therefore bad things happen to them. And therefore, at times it felt really tough to follow. There were times when I was watching going, what the fuck is going on? Which timeline are we in? Because it bounces between timelines constantly. And somehow, because it was so convoluted, I got a bit bored at some point in it where I was like, oh God, I don't know what's happening anymore. Maybe it was just that bit too long and maybe it tried to pack too much into the story. And I personally love anything to do with like ancient religious practices, curses, religious taboos. So as a story, like it was really interesting and really original but something about it just didn't quite work and look we all know that I don't have a great attention span so it could be that I missed vital pieces while I was watching 
or that because it was so long I just sort of zoned out without realising. But it makes me not know what to give this film out of five. I think I'm going to give it a three and a half. Which seems a bit harsh but I don't feel like it's a four. I would definitely recommend watching it. 100% if you're a horror movie fan, if you're looking for something new to watch, this is one to watch. But like I said, be prepared to have to fully watch it. You have to be fully immersed, fully paying attention because it is subtitled. So that's three and a half stars for Incantation. Which brings us to our story this week. Now, before we crack into the story, which is not about curses, it is not about ancient people living in the mountains and practicing religions that are scary. But before we get into it, I need to say something about the sources that I used for this week's story. So my sources were travelermovement.org.uk, the 14 times edition number 407 from July 2021, And the article was called Gypsy Ghost Stories, Exploring the Supernatural Lore of England's Travelling Community by Jeremy Hart. And a book called Gypsy Campfire Stories by J.D. Jones. Now look, I can already hear people typing furiously because I've said the word gypsy. But let's be really, really clear. In the UK, the word gypsy is a descriptor or an identifier. Jeremy Hart, who wrote that particular article in the 14 Times is the secretary of the Surrey Gypsy Forum and added a note to his article requesting that the word gypsy be used when talking about the Romanichal people. Traveller, he wrote, encompasses many different groups including the Irish travellers. Irish travellers and Romani gypsies are totally separate ethnic groups. Equally, Jill Brown of the London Gypsy and Traveller Unit said, Romani gypsies are an ethnic group So it depends on the way you are using it. If you use it in the correct context, it is not racist. But she then went on to say that she recognises that the word gypsy has and can be used in a derogatory way. In order to verify this, because I was still feeling a bit unsure, I reached out to members of the Romanichal community and had discussions around the use of the word gypsy in the UK. And it was confirmed that the use of the word gypsy is accepted as the standard term for a person in the Romani community when used both by people within the community and by gorgers who are people in the settled community. With all that being said, when I did reach out to the Romanichal community and say, look, what's the story with this? Why do I get attacked when I use the word gypsy? They did highlight the fact that actually, while in the UK, gypsy is an accepted term. It is not seen as a slur. Obviously, if you use it within the right context, but in other places in the world, it can be seen as a slur. So I understand that a word in one place can have a completely different meaning and implication in another place. So because of that, for the purpose of this story, I will be referring to the Romani community or the Romani people unless the word gypsy is used in an official title. I hope that makes it really clear at the beginning of this story. I've no intention of using a word to try and sound edgy and cool, but for the purposes of this story, I'm taking my cue from the Romanichal people. The Romanichal people have been described as unique among peoples because they have never identified themselves with the territory. They have no tradition of an ancient and distant homeland from which their ancestors migrated, nor do they claim the right to national sovereignty in any of the lands where they reside. Rather, Romani identity is bound up with the ideal of freedom expressed in part in having no ties to a homeland. The absence of a written history has meant that the origin and early history of the Romani people was long an enigma. 
Indian origin was suggested on linguistic grounds as early as the late 18th century. Genetic evidence connects the Romani people to the descendants who emigrated from South Asia towards Central Asia during the medieval period. Recently in mini-episode 158, there was a story where the writer had shared the paranormal beliefs that his Roman child friend had shared with him. And it got me thinking that people who have travelled the roads of England for generations must have built up a wealth of supernatural beliefs and superstitions. But the problem was that I didn't know where to start to find these stories. But in reality, I just wasn't looking hard enough. Turns out the Roman people have a wealth of stories and superstitions that are told in trailers and around campfires up and down the country. Romani stories are often strange little tales of bizarre encounters with otherworldly creatures and scenarios on the road. These scenarios are witnessed or experienced, and then the witness simply moves on without looking for a solution or an explanation. In the Romani language, there was no word for ghost, as we understand it. There was a word, Muller, which loosely translated to a sort of reanimated corpse or a devil. But there were so many stories that didn't quite fit that description that a word was invented that simply translated to him of the wind. Some of the stories were simply cautionary tales in order to keep children from straying. Stories of mullers and giant black pigs in the woods that would snatch up wandering children in a heartbeat. But the stories don't just fall on the ears of children. Adults tell stories of ghostly encounters, of fairies and UFOs. It seems that one of the key tenets of Romani superstition when on the road is to pay close attention to your animals and recognise when they are telling you that something is unsafe. Paying close attention to what was happening in your environment was key to keeping out of the way of those of the wind. Horses knew instinctively when something was wrong. So if a horse refused to go somewhere, the Romani would pay attention. Jim Penfold of the Gypsy Council told a story of his grandmother. When she was a child, her parents had set up camp and stopped their wagons at Ruddington, only a day's ride from Nottingham Fair. As night settled in and the family lay down to sleep, they began to hear the stamping and pawing of the horses. Initially, they assumed a fox was nearby and they ignored it. But the stamping became more panicked and the horses began to snort and whinny and the dogs began to howl and bark. Something was very wrong. The family roused themselves and emerged from the wagon to try and calm the distressed animals. As they were trying to soothe the horses, a strange rhythmic creaking noise began behind them. The family turned and were horrified to see the wagon shaking back and forth as though there was a strong wind or big hands rocking the wagon with great force. There was not a breath of wind in the air. Suddenly a hawking basket was lifted into the air and flung 100 yards away, its contents being flung here, there and everywhere. The kettle iron was lifted and smashed against the wagon as though thrown with great force. The family did not dare set foot back in the wagon and spent the night in a makeshift camp nearby. As the sun rose and the family gingerly approached the camp, everything seemed normal. The horses had calmed and the dogs were asleep under the wheels of the wagon and the items that had been flung around were nestled back in their rightful places. The family were perplexed and packed up in order to get to the Nottingham Fair. 
The fair passed as normal and the family were visited by a pastor. They told the pastor the story, as it was still niggling away at the back of their minds. Tell me, said the pastor. What did you have in your basket? The woman looked at him, bemused by his question. My hawking basket? It was just some lengths of mohair lace that I was going to hawk at the fair. The pastor looked more grave all of a sudden and asked them to explain exactly where they had camped that night. They explained, and he cleared his throat and shifted in his chair. Ah, of course. That was where the girl was murdered. She was strangled in the field with a length of mohair lace. For Romani communities, animals are not just animals. They are indicators, and a direct litmus test for the world of the dead. According to Romani tradition, the owl knows when the ghost is about, for it never goes where they are. So Romani people stop where they hear the owl cry. And it's not just animal antics. A life on the road means that inevitably you are going to come across some strange scenarios. What I didn't expect when researching this episode was that I would come across multiple stories about an unexpected entity. J.D. Jones compiled multiple stories from peoples of all ages across the community in his book Gypsy Campfire Stories. And they were surprising. The town of Monmouth is a normal, relatively unremarkable town. But just outside it sits a 10-mile stretch of dual carriageway. And that 10-mile stretch is dark and long. It's definitely not the type of place where you would want your van to break down. And it was definitely not the place that you wanted your van to break down in 1996, when mobile phones weren't widespread and the only way to call for help was to stick out your thumb and hope that someone generous would stop and give you a lift to the nearest phone box. Thomas began walking up the road towards civilization, and every time he heard a car approach and felt himself being engulfed in headlights, he would stop and stick his thumb out. As was usual, a number of cars sped past him, until eventually, a Volvo pulled up ahead of him. Thomas was delighted this was quicker than expected. He opened the passenger door and hopped into the car, thanking the driver profusely for stopping. Thank you, thank you, thank you, my bloody van broke down, is there any chance you could drop me to a phone box? Silence. The driver didn't respond. Really, I am so grateful. I could have been walking for ages before somebody stopped. Silence. Thomas was beginning to feel strange. He turned and looked at the man in the driver's seat, and he was stunned by what he saw. The man next to him was sitting bolt upright in the seat, hands white-knuckled, gripping the steering wheel as he drove. Thomas shifted his eyes from the driver's hands and back to his face. The man was staring straight ahead with huge, bulging, unblinking eyes. For as long as Thomas watched him, the man didn't blink. He was completely bald and had a general look, a general vibe that felt unnatural. Thomas didn't know how long he stared for, but he had forgotten all manners as he watched this still unblinking man. 
Suddenly the man's head snapped towards him and Thomas jumped in his seat as the man's eyes met his. There was no humanity there. Just empty, blank eyes. And then he spoke. You humanoids don't know your place in the world, but you will soon. Maybe not in your lifetime, but soon. You look to the sky and worry about being invaded. Well, the truth is you are already invaded. This will be our planet long after you are gone. Thomas was panicking now. The man was speeding along the dual carriageway while still staring at him. His voice was deep and flat, sounding completely hollow. Was it possible to jump out of the car? If the man got violent, Thomas was prepared to fight and fight hard. But suddenly the car stopped and the safe light of a petrol station flooded the vehicle. Thomas scrambled for the door handle, not taking his eyes off the man for a second. He was still staring, still gripping the wheel. Thomas managed to get the door open and fell backwards out of the car. The man turned his head to look out the windscreen and as Thomas shut the door, the man spoke again. Remember, we are already among you. Now, like I said when I was researching for this episode, I wasn't expecting stories of the men in black, but it makes sense. You're travelling the dark back roads all over England and you see things you're not meant to see. And who shows up? It's obviously going to be the men in black. And this wasn't the only men in black story that I came across. There were others. Other strange encounters of men in black and Indrid Cold type characters. And stories of strange lights in the sky and abductions. And what I thought I would find were lots of stories of fairies and folklore. And there was, of course, that in abundance. In 1997, Bill and his brother Tom had pitched in Formby. It was a hot and beautiful summer and they spent their days and nights with other older teenagers, drinking and getting up to mischief. On one of those balmy nights, Bill and Tom were making their way home and wandering along the mile-long country track that led to their site. They shoved and jostled each other down the lane, laughing and joking about the night's antics, when they became aware of a rustling that seemed to be following them. They laughed about it, shouting into the hedges, hoping to scare away whatever animal it was. But the rustling continued, and it sounded weirdly like footsteps. They were confused by what they were hearing, but not particularly scared, until they heard a voice, a grotesque, deep, snarling voice. Bill and Tom froze. Who in the fuck was that? The two looked towards where the voice was coming from and they could make out a silhouette leaning out from behind a tree. The silhouette of a small man with a pointed hat. Tom, are you seeing that? I'm seeing it. Do you think it's time to run? Absolutely. The two sprinted the half a mile back to the trailer And when they got home, they rehashed the event. No one ever believed what they had seen and heard. But that wasn't the end of the story. 
Three years later, the brothers and their family had set up camp in the same place again, and the incident with the little man was only a distant memory. Bill and his other brother, GD, happened to be sleeping top and tail that night, and GD was long asleep. Bill was lying awake when a wind began to howl outside and the door of the trailer slammed open. He groaned as he sat up to close it. He swung his legs over the edge of the bed and looked up and silhouetted in the moonlight in the doorway was the same little man. Bill. Bill. Bill stared. It was unmistakable. It was the same creature that they had seen years before. He felt a force wrap round his neck and struggled against it until suddenly the force lifted. There was nothing. No wind and the trailer door, wide open, creaked softly in the night. The next morning over breakfast, Bill sat down with GD and told him what happened. Bill, it was a dream. Stop being ridiculous. And besides, if you were wrestling with a fairy in the night, I would have heard you. And they went to work for the day and discussed the situation no more. And later that night, it was GD who was laying in bed, when he heard a scurrying in the trailer. A scurrying that sounded suspiciously like footsteps. He sat up, and like Bill the night before, he could see the silhouette of a little man approaching him. Shit. He, like his brother before, felt an immense weight around his neck and fought with the unseen force until it suddenly lifted. The next morning, GD apologised to Bill and told him what happened the night before. Their brother, Tom, quietly said, I believe you. Do you remember what we saw three years ago that night? I think it's the same thing. That morning was spent trying to understand what they had seen. What this little man was. Was it a fairy? Surely not. Fairies were the things of children's stories and had no basis in reality. Right? Eventually the brothers talked to the end of their thoughts and decided it was time to get on with the day. As they left the trailer, they stopped dead in their tracks. There was a huge brown toadstool right in the middle of the land they were parked on. It was enormous, bigger than any toadstool they had ever seen and it definitely had not been there yesterday. Believing it was connected to the little man, they removed the toadstool and never experienced the man again. Julie lay still, listening to the clattering on the roof of the trailer. It must have been a bird, or even an owl. It had been going on for a while now. I know what you're thinking, her husband whispered beside her. I don't think it's a bird. She hadn't realised he was awake. They were on their summer travels and had settled in some woodlands in Pembrokeshire. They lay silently staring at the roof. Maybe it's a rat, they wondered. But the pitter-pattering sounded like footsteps. And then the voices started. Small voices on the roof. What the hell was going on? It was the unmistakable sound of voices giggling and whispering. Small voices that were muffled by the metal that separated them from the inhabitants of the caravan. Julie made the decision to get up and at least check the skylight to see if she could see anything up there. 
Maybe it was their imagination. She ambled to the centre of the trailer and looked up into the night sky. And there, pressed against the glass, looking right back at her, was a smiling face. The smile exuded darkness and the eyes glowed against the black of the night. The face was small, smaller than a child's and pointed. Julie screamed in panic and her husband leaped out of the bed, grabbed a sweeping brush and fled out the door of his trailer, ready to take on whoever it was. He ran around the trailer and finding nothing he slowed to a halt and looked around only to see that everyone else was out of their trailers. A rabble of voices bubbled up and through the confusion there was a similar story. They had all heard footsteps, voices and laughter on the roof of their trailers. Some had seen faces, but all agreed that there was something unnatural about the woodlands and it was time for them to leave. There were many interesting stories that I came across when looking for stories from the Roman child community. These stories are often passed down from generation to generation and are told and retold over drinks around a campfire. I was struck by the similarities between gorgeous stories and stories of the Romani, but there are some notable threads and themes in Romani stories. Animals and nature play a key role in understanding the supernatural threats of an area. Stories happen everywhere and anywhere, and they are very rarely residual hauntings, and more often they are active hauntings. There are stories that are weird, wild and wonderful, And there is something else about the stories that is really interesting. There is no attempt to solve the stories. There's no need to solve the stories. Something strange has happened. And it simply is what it is. There is no ending. There is no solution. You just simply move on. I loved researching these stories. It was just so fun. And that article by Jeremy Hart in the 14 Times was really interesting. If you find that copy of the 14 Times, it's July 2022. So if you find that edition and you have the opportunity to buy it, I would recommend buying it, even if it's just for that particular article, because it's a really interesting article. And he talks about in in the article, the patterns that emerge in Romanich child stories. And really interesting, he says that traditional Romanich child ghost stories that are passed down from generation to generation generally don't tell stories of the ghosts of other Romani people. It is more likely that the stories are about hauntings of gorgers or settled people. So when Romani people experience a haunting scenario or paranormal activity, it'll more likely be the ghost of a gorger that is causing it. But on the really rare occasions that there are stories passed down of Roman child people who have passed away and who are haunting a family or an area, they're more likely to be heard and not seen. And the older and more traditional stories talk a lot about winds, really loud winds that come out of nowhere, really strange sounds in the woodlands, like they're really nature-based stories. And I absolutely know that I am missing huge elements of Roman child folklore. I know that this episode is by no means exhaustive in any way, shape or form. But I think a lot of superstition and folklore that's deeply embedded in a community, it doesn't come from asking a direct question. So you couldn't, I don't think you could contact somebody and be like, hello, tell me about all of your superstitions and folklore. Because you'd sit there and go, oh, I don't know any of my superstition and folklore. It's only in 
natural conversation I think that these things come out or they come out in response to events that happen around you so I think it would take a long time a long long time to try and figure out and understand the extensive folklore of a particular ethnic group but in regards to the stories that I covered in this episode today I decided I want to cover like a, a mix of stories so I wanted a ghost story I wanted a UFO story and I wanted some fairy stories and they all came from or were adapted from uh, G.D. Jones's book Gypsy Campfire Stories which I got on Amazon I think. Anyway that book was great because it was a massive collection of stories from within the Roman child community and some of them were like literally a couple of sentences long while other ones are much longer. That was great. It was great to go through them all and try and pick out the ones that I thought worked best for this episode. Can we just talk about the fact that the men in black seem to feature in these stories? Wasn't expecting that. Men in black, they get around, right? And and the man in black that I featured in this story was definitely the worst man in black ever. That is a man in black who is disgruntled with his job. The first human he sees after having a meeting with his boss and he's like, you know what? You, you humans, you humans, Think you got it hard? You've no idea. Always worrying about aliens. We're already here. Okay? We're already here. Aliens are already here. And all I do is try and protect you. And what do you do? Fanny around, looking at UFOs, trying to get yourself in trouble. And all I have to do is clean up your mess. He was definitely a disgruntled employee. Because giving away all the trade secrets automatically to somebody who gets into your car, not a good trade for a men in black. It's amazing in general as well how more people didn't just die in the 90s from thumb and a lift everywhere. It just blows my mind that it was just the acceptable thing to do. Like my family did it. I have obviously was too young to do it, but like my brothers would do it. My mom would do it when she needed to go somewhere. Like imagine thumb and a lift somewhere nowadays. I don't think I'd stop and pick someone up, which says a lot about me, I think, that I would just be like, oh no. I'm not picking you up. I don't I don't feel safe doing that. Whereas in the 90s, everyone was thumbing lifts here, there and everywhere. There must be so many people, like thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have crazy stories from hitchhiking. My mom told me a hitchhiking story one time where she was hitchhiking across Scotland and somebody stopped and picked her up. And honestly, it was the wildest story that I have ever heard. And literally when she told me, I just stared at her with my mouth open because I was like, this is like a... A, scene, a plot from a movie I can't tell on the podcast because she'll kill me never mind the paranormal really because it's hitchhiking stories that are the stories that are uh, hard to believe you know and I do think it's just inevitable that if you're spending your time traveling the roads setting up your camp in various woodlands etc etc is it inevitable that you're going to see all number of strange things is it inevitable that you are going to come in contact with more weird local lore and legends than anybody else would. If anyone was going to experience fairy stories, of course it was going to be people who are on the road and stopping in various woodlands all over the place. And I loved, loved the fairy stories in this episode. I love a fairy story anyway. Like, I always love them. I'm really reluctant to say the F word, actually, because it always ends up going terribly wrong and my recording goes awful and something will inevitably break but I did enjoy the fairy stories. I particularly enjoyed the fact that all of the stories included multiple people who all witnessed something similar 
And like I always say, I think there is a perception of fairies being like this, these sweet little creatures that you imagine from childhood, like we small women in sparkly dresses with nice wings that flutter around generally being cute. That's, that's not, that's not the fairies that we grew up with. And the fairies in these stories sound positively maniacal. Like that little fellow with the pointed heart coming into the trailer in the middle of the night wrestling? Ah, no, absolutely not. And I'm sure there's all manner of natural explanations for the brothers seeing the little man and for Julie and her husband hearing the whatever they were on the roof pitter-pattering around and seeing that little face. I wonder as well if places build up a certain reputation. So presumably there will be places all over the country that are marked as a safe place to set up camp. But if weird things happen in that place, then surely word would spread where it'd be like, oh, we set up camp there, but we think it's haunted because these things happened. And then if you do set up camp there, are you expecting to see or hear something? And therefore, anything you do see or hear, you then automatically assume that it's paranormal. We all know that the power of suggestion is indeed a very powerful thing. But what I will say is that the stories, the modern stories in G.D. Jones's book were totally varied, totally varied and encompassed all sorts of supernatural beings and scenarios. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you would like to learn anything about a Real Life Ghost Stories podcast, you can do so by checking out reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. If you are desperate for more content, you can sign up to patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content and every single mini and main episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time.